At this point, Israel has come into the promised land, had this tremendous and miraculous victory over the walled city of Jericho, and then after uh, some presumption and some sin in the camp, conquered Ai. And now we pick up, and for everything we're going to cover in the rest of the campaign, the military campaign of Israel, um, no longer are they going to be setting the agenda. Now things kind of like dominoes just start to fall, and if you will, the fight kind of comes to them. And so notice how that begins in chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, so we already knew that kind of... Uh, all of the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land uh, were full of fear and trepidation. Those were the words of Rahab, that the whole nations, all the nations, all the people's hearts have melted like wax because they've heard of what happened of Egypt. They've heard what happened with King Og and King Sihon. They've heard how you've crossed the River Jordan. And now, once again, there's hearing going on uh, so it's as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, uh, all of these uh, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now the this it's probably referring to is the battle at Ai and the following big covenant ceremony that they had done um, at the very end of chapter 8 there. And so they're very aware of the progress and the presence uh, that Israel is making, and so they start to band together. They make a coalition. They're going to raise up and fight against Israel. Now, the inhabitants of the land uh, come from a lot of different places, and they share different tribal names, and uh, every time we find a list of them, back in the book of Genesis with Abraham, as God is talking to Moses in Exodus Deuteronomy in Numbers, and here in Joshua, and even further on into Judges, uh, the list isn't always the same. Um, sometimes they're just referred to broadly as Canaanites, or broadly as Amorites, or as they are here, uh, a selection of them is listed. What's interesting about this particular list is that it chooses six nations and puts them in the same order as only one other list we have. Okay. And that happens to be the list in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. But if you look at the context back in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it actually is intriguing in its significance. So you can see here in verse 17, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That's the same six that we just encountered in Joshua in the same order. But notice what it says in 16. But in the cities of the peoples that your Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. And then verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. And so look all the way up at verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Okay, so that's generally how Israel is supposed to behave, but not with the people in the land. 
okay? Outside the land, there's the possibility of a peace treaty, but inside the land, there's to be no such treaty. And in this explanation, we find this list of nations, and so it's interesting that we find the same list heading what follows in chapter 9, because it's effectively a peace treaty with the wrong people, okay? And so, I don't necessarily think the author thought we would clue into that, but a close reader would. A close reader would recognize that connection. And so all of these uh, strong peoples gather together, make a coalition. But, verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provision and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. I have a feeling that's the only place where crumbly occurs in the Old Testament, or the New for that matter. Uh, but already we can probably clue into what's going on here. They're playing a part. Right? And so they have costumes and they dress up not in their Sunday best, but in their traveler's worst. And so the whole idea of how they're dressed, of the provisions that they carry, is going to be to feed this line to Israel that we are from far, far away. We've been on a tremendously long journey to arrive here to talk to you, O oh great Israel people. But it's all an act. And so we can see here, Everyone else is going, okay, we've got to fight this. And the Gibeonites go, I've got a better idea. Let's deceive them. Let's trick them. Okay. And so uh, they come, verse uh, 6, they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. They want a covenant. A non-aggression pact. I was trying to remember what the last word was. They want a non-aggression pact. Let's be buddies. Let's make a covenant. Let's make a treaty. Let's make an agreement. And so they say this right out of the front, and they say, we've come from a distant country. Now, the commentator, the writer here, wants us to clue in on how dangerous the circumstances are. So notice what he says in verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites... Okay. The Gibeonites are a smaller tribe from the people of the Hivites. They're on this list, the list that we just read earlier in the chapter, the same one that we find in the do not make a peace treaty with these people. Uh, the narrator knows that. We know that. Israel does not. And so he just puts that little plug in there. But the Hivites, uh, Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? Okay. And so notice here, Israel is wary. They're reluctant to just go, great, let's shake hands, right? They go, maybe, maybe you come from nearby, okay? And that's good. They're familiar with the teaching in Deuteronomy. They know categorically the differences here, and so they, they say, how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you, and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we've heard a report of him. And all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, to Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. 
Okay, and so we see here it's very similar testimony to what Rahab communicated. Once again, in the mouth of foreigners, we hear the works of the God of Israel. And so in verse 11, they said, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. And then here comes the ruse, verse 12. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They believe their eyes. They take the evidence that is right in front of them. And let's recognize what's going on here. The facts are facts. Their clothes really are worn out. Their sandals really are ruined. Their wineskins truly are burst. Their food truly is old. But from that, they don't perceive the truth. The truth that those things were conveniently selected to deceive them. And notice here that they do not consult the Lord. Now, this isn't emphasized in AI, but we can see, once again, it's the same misstep that Israel makes. With AI, remember, Joshua sends out some spies, and the spies come back, and they say, piece of cake. We don't even need the whole army. 3,000 men should be sufficient. We're going to have this, no problem. And Joshua doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't ask, like he did with Jericho, what the battle plan is. He just goes for it, and then he discovers, unbeknownst to him, that somebody hasn't fulfilled the single requirement Israel was given in Jericho, not to keep any of the stuff. And so Achan has taken a little bit of silver and a beautiful garment uh, and a couple of other things, and he's hidden them in his tent. And so Israel just face plants, right? They flee in terror before their enemies, and 36 men die. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that Joshua didn't consult the Lord. As much as we talked about those deaths and that danger being on Achan's head and Achan's responsibility, it's also Joshua's as a leader. The pattern was supposed to be God will lead them in warfare and give them victory. And here again, they take the evidence right in front of them, they believe what they're seeing, and they make a well-educated decision. But they do not consult the Lord. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So, here's the circumstances, and once again we see a misstep of Israel, and now we have to watch as things follow through, as as things lay out. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their city on the third day. Now, from the place where Israel is, it's only 19 miles to Gibeah. And remember, they don't have cars, so it's not not a 20-minute drive. But it is a lot less than a day's journey. And so most likely here, they meet, they rest a day, they set out the next day, and they walk right into Gibeah. Right into their town. It's amazing the boldness of the Gibeonites plan 
right? What if Israel had said, let us think about it, come back next week, right? The whole thing would have fallen away. But they're aggressive, they take the action, they push for the covenant. Israel falls for it, and so they make this covenant, and then they move forward, and the next place they encounter is Gibeah. And so, verse 17, the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Chiphereah, Berioth, Kirith, Jerim. So it's not just one city. It's not just one small people. In fact, we know from other passages in Scripture, and what we'll read in just a little minute, uh, in just a minute here, the Gibeonites were actually a pretty sizable people and well known for their military power. Okay, now maybe they weren't as respected as Jericho, and so I'm not saying they didn't have reason to be afraid of Israel here. This is a sizable people group. It's not just a single city, but multiple cities here. And so they come, and then notice, verse 18, the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. That's interesting, isn't it? They don't go, hey, wait a minute, you tricked us. Now we will have our revenge. This oath that they've taken is irreversible. They'll say in a second that they took this oath swearing by the Lord himself that they would have peace with these people, that they would not attack. The Bible puts a heavy emphasis on swearing and oaths, and Jesus upgrades it entirely and just says, look, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. We have a tendency to think in the modern world that if if there's some sort of deception, if there's some sort of disqualification, if we discover that we didn't have all the information, then clearly we're out of the contract. And while that may serve us in modern business deals, in terms of giving our word, Israel recognizes that they're stuck to keep it. In Psalm 15, it talks about a man who is righteous enough to ascend the mountain of the Lord. In other words, it's it's a short poem that gives a lesson of the ideal Israelite. And one of the things it says in there is that the righteous man who can ascend into the mountain of the Lord keeps his promises to his own harm. Okay, It kind of makes me think of that old uh, Shakespeare saying that... Uh, love is not altered when alteration finds. Now, I don't know if that's true of love. I think it probably is. But for Israel, an oath is not altered when alteration finds. And so the people grumble because of the foolishness of the elders. Because now they're stuck in a place where they can't be obedient. Right? Do you see where they're stuck here between an oath that they've made and the commandment that they've been given? And it's going to get worse. And so, verse 19, the leaders said to the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Okay? And so they say, if we take vengeance, if we break our oath, God will hold us accountable. 
Now, like I said, that's going to come to weigh on them very quickly because as soon as the rest of the nations hear about this, they're going to attack Gibeah and Gibeah is going to go, help please, treaty partners, those of you who are in covenant with us, come to our rescue. Okay, But interestingly enough, we find out that this is exactly how God feels about this commitment because eventually someone does attack the Gibeonites. Saul. And so we're talking about hundreds of years later, after the book of Judges, after Samuel is on the scene and unifies Israel, after Saul is raised up and made king, he attacks the Gibeonites. And listen to what happens in 2 Samuel uh, 21. So here in 2 Samuel 21, look at how the chapter opens. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of a remnant of the Amorites, okay? And it goes on and tells the whole story. But this is generations later. And it brings a great famine on the land because they, as a nation, represented by King Saul, do not keep their covenant. Now, I think that's significant for us today um, because we are, as Americans especially, a right-oriented people. We're concerned for our rights and infringement upon our rights. And definitely what we see here is, uh, is that the, the rights of Israel don't eradicate the responsibility they owe, even when those rights are impinged upon, even when they're taken advantage of. And, and so they were foolish not to consult the Lord. They were foolish not to engage the Lord, and because of that, these consequences follow. We could say the same thing about Achan. Not only do 36 men die, but maybe when chapter 9 opened and said, now when the nations heard about these things, they formed a coalition to fight the people of Israel, maybe what they've heard about is, oh, Israel is not invincible. Did you hear what happened at Ai? It took them two attempts. What if we band together? Maybe we have a chance in this. Right Before that, how did Jericho go down? It just went down. But now we see this change in the battlefield. It makes me wonder, honestly and truly, in my own life, what life looks like now because I didn't consult the Lord in my decisions. Because I just thought, I have the facts. I'll make a responsible choice. I can see what's going on. I'm just going to move through this door. We don't get to hear the story of the ideal military escapades of Israel. We read the compromised one. The path changes. The way forward shifts. Things move around differently. And so here they are, and they're stuck in this place, and they're stuck by their own word and the oath that they've made before the Lord, and God expects them to keep it. 
And so, verse 21, the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became the cutters of wood and the drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So notice that this treaty was not merely a non-aggression pact. It's not let's be partners. It's we are your servants. Remember, that was the word of the Gibeonite leaders. And they meant it. In fact, this is probably the clearest example we have in the Old Testament of a common phenomenon in the ancient world that we call a suzerain vassal treaty. In other words, these people take a knee and become the servants of Israel uh, instead of fight them, which seems to be, by the way, the same sort of document that the book of Deuteronomy is based around. Okay, and so Israel are the servants of the Lord, and in the same way Gibeah becomes the servants, servants of Israel, and so their life here is as cutters of wood, drawers of water for all the congregation, and then later on after the tabernacle is placed in Shiloh, they also become the ones who supply all of the wood for the tabernacle. Okay. Now, just like Rahab, we have a people who, with a little bit of deception, become part of Israel, okay? And so Rahab covers up for the spies and says, they went that away. But she's commended for her faith and she becomes not only part of Israel, but part of Jesus's lineage. In the same way here, the Gibeonites, through deception, become part of the people of Israel. In fact, not only do we find them coexisting all the way up to Gibeah and when, or all the way up to Saul, and when Saul starts to put them to death, there's consequences and David has to set it right. But when we get all the way forward to the book of Nehemiah, when Israel has been driven out of the promised land because they've become just like the Canaanites, and now God has faithfully, as he promised in the book of Deuteronomy, brought them back to the land, we find a couple of Gibeonite descendants working on the wall to rebuild Jerusalem. They become part of the people of God. And so, verse 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We're very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of, your, uh, some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And so they said, Not only have they heard about the things God did, but they're familiar with the commandments of Moses. In fact, it makes us wonder here if the Gibeonites knew the distinctions in Deuteronomy chapter 20 between the outsiders who can uh, not be attacked and the insiders who they're to have no mercy on, who they can't make a peace agreement with. Their plot seems so specifically fit to the commandments of Deuteronomy, and here they come and they say, we're familiar with them. Now, maybe even they read them right off of the memorial stones that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember, Moses gathers the people at Mount Ebal, he rereads through the entire law, and then he sets up 12 big stones that are whitewashed, and inscribed on them is all the words of the covenant, of the book of the covenant, including the ones in Deuteronomy chapter 20. However it is, they know what's going on, and they honestly just say, we were deceptive because we were afraid. And so Joshua responds to them, And now behold, sorry, they're still speaking here in verse 25. Now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us, do it. So he did this to them and he delivered them out of the hands of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. 
But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and, like his curse, for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Okay, and so here we find one tribe, an entire tribe that avoids destruction through their deception and the oath of Israel. And then chapter 10. As soon as Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he'd done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Why? Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Okay, so Gibeah can't be labeled cowards. They're respected in the land for being a large and strong people, and the city of Gibeah is greater than Ai. And so there's a pattern going on here, and what the king of Jerusalem here recognizes is that he has lost a powerful ally, somebody that he respected, the soldiers of, and so he realizes oh, we've got to respond, and we've got to respond right now. Now, a side note, notice this man's name is Adonai Zedek, and he's the king of Jerusalem. One of the things you'll notice as you read through uh, the Old Testament is reoccurring royal names, okay? So, for example, a little bit later in this chapter, we're going to encounter Eglon. You probably know Eglon from the book of Judges. He's severely obese, uh, and he's taken out by one of the judges. That's not this Eglon. This, or that is this Eglon's replacement. Or maybe a few generations down. In the same way, when you read through the book of Genesis, we find uh, both Isaac and uh, his, or Abraham and Isaac standing before Abimelech. But it's not the same Abimelech. That's the royal title. In the same way in Egypt, Pharaoh is the title for the king. Okay. Now, Adonizedek seems to be the same thing. Interestingly enough, when you go back to the book of Genesis, we encounter this strange character, Melchizedek. He's also the king of Salem, the king of peace, of Jerusalem. And his name is basically the king of righteousness, whereas here, Adonai is the lord of righteousness. But there's probably a continuity in their office, Okay. It's just an interesting point to recognize, okay? And so he hears about this, and so, verse 3, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel." Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of Hebron, the kings of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Okay? Now we see the complication that comes along with this. Okay? Now, these five kings, their kingdoms, these major cities, basically take up the southern half of Israel, including Jerusalem. Okay? And so think of the Dead Sea, think of uh, uh, um, Jericho is also in the south, so that's already where Israel is. This is the southern half of Israel, so don't think Sea of Galilee, we'll get to those people. Um, but in the southern half of Israel, these are all the major players, and all at once they band together to attack 
Gibeon. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And so they give us a good assessment of what these five kings are in total. It's basically the entire people of southern Israel. All of them, all of the southern Canaanites are gathered together, here labeled as the Amorites. Verse 7, so... Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war went him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. I love that verse in this context. Because think of how different it would have gone if you were in charge. Joshua, you got yourself into this mess. You should have consulted me about the Gibeonites, and now look at things. You're on your own. You see, there's this tension in what I said earlier about how we're already in, you know, a couple degrees removed from God's ideal campaign because of the missteps of Joshua and the people of Israel. Uh, but I love how it says in the New Testament, in the words of the Paul, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Okay. God knew who Israel was the day he chose them and elected to use them. He knew who Israel was and the things that they would face. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, he doesn't know just what's going to happen in the days of Joshua in this campaign, Achan's misstep, and the elders of Israel misstep, but he knows that eventually Israel is just going to rebel and flee and worship the gods of this land. They're going to fail in their mission ultimately, and ultimately God's going to have to uproot them. This is, this is all, in a different sense, according to plan. And so, I think this is important because for us, in our own life, we always have to deal with our relationship with God with where we are, not where we should have been. Okay? And the great thing is the God we encounter in the Bible is the God who meets us where we're at. And so there's a difference here between what Israel should have done and what they're going to do now. Going back, and this is how it should be in our life, we should consult the Lord in our decisions. We shouldn't be so um, self-sufficient and only go to God for the big things. We shouldn't go, well, all the facts line up, and so I'll just be reasonable. We should engage the Lord. But they, we have this tendency on the other side to go, that's it, one too many mistakes, too many times I found myself off the road, in the ditch. Too many times here I've wandered away. There's no chance of me going back now. And God just sets that aside. When he says, don't be afraid, Joshua, it's not like the do not be afraid we've read in other places where it's don't be afraid because I've got this and I've promised you these things. This is also don't be afraid. You haven't screwed up too big for me to use this right? God is promising that he's going to use these circumstances. And we can't guess what the hypothetical other way would have been, but God meets us where we're at. And so he meets Joshua here and he says, I'm in this. I'll use this. Read again in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So he, he knows, he hears about this. Uh, here, uh, we don't know what Adonizedek was expecting, but he wasn't expecting Joshua with the break of dawn. 
right? He, he double marches all the way through the night and attacks them at first light, and they're completely caught off guard. Okay, verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. Okay, and so notice here, even though we see Joshua's strategy, he marches through the night, he catches them off guard, it makes clear here that it's God who strikes fear into their hearts. It's God who sends them running. And this is the tension we always find in the book of Joshua. There really are soldiers swinging swords on the front line, but there's also God giving them over. And it gets stronger in this story. This is, by the way, the last uh, laid out in front of us battle in the book of Joshua. Surprising, isn't it? We're only in chapter 10. We've, we've not even gotten halfway through the book. For the way we often think of Joshua, it's just Jericho, Ai, and this battle that begins with the Gibeonites against the southern ones that is actually laid out scene by scene. But I want you to notice what the final truth it wants to drive home as it takes time to slow down to show us this battle. And so the first thing is we see God working in the battle and then look at verse 11. As, as they fled before Israel while they were going down at the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the son of Israel killed with the sword. Okay, and so it begins to hail such large hailstones that they're mortal if they hit you. And they just become, they, you know, it's basically the elements that are pummeling this enemy army. But notice here, the hail is being selective, right? I mean, it's not very far behind that Israel is. And maybe you've been on the edge of a hailstorm, but you don't keep running and the edge keeps moving with you. You know, however this plays out, God is clearly through nature and miraculously handling this. And it wants us to know here, the narrator takes the time, by the way, the death count of God and his hailstorm outweighed the death count of Israel. We see again that this is God's battle. He's going to fight it. He's going to do the heavy lifting. Okay. And then notice this in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Okay. And so we see here that Joshua's in hot pursuit. And then as we read this, in front of all of Israel, he yells out and he speaks directly, it looks like here, to the sun itself and says, stop it. Stop moving. Stop going down. Stop progressing. Day, pause. And it does. And the author stops to say, if you don't believe me, just read the book of Jasher. 
Now, we don't have the book of Jasher, but this isn't the only place it's referenced. It's referenced at least one more time in our Old Testament, and then there's one Greek Septuagint verse in another place that we don't have in the old Masoretic text that mentions it a third time. Okay. But here, the author mentions it just to say uh, that whoever this Jasher guy is, it's well known. He put it in his own history that this happened and then notice in verse 14, he says, there's not been a day like it before or since. That's super important, okay? This is one of those passages that people read and go, this is why I can't believe the Bible. Because just consider scientifically what we're talking about here, okay? First off, first off, the sun is relative to the earth always still, okay? That's where the nerds want to start on this, right? It's like, Let's be clear here, it's the earth and the moon that move around the sun, and the sun is the one that, at least relative to the earth, stays still, okay? Now, just because we're reading a book, I call foul, okay? Observational communication is not anti-science, okay? We still say the sun rises and the sun sets, and the nerds never go, actually, right? Sometimes they do. Uh, but that's fine. That's not where the real issue is here. The real issue is, okay, so scientifically then, we're talking about the earth stopping in its rotation. Is that what we're talking about? That the sun stays in the same place in the sky because the earth stops moving? And then they start talking about the cataclysmic event that that would be, and they go, see, this is clearly, okay, the first thing, the first thing we should understand tonight is that the Bible doesn't see miracles as being a normal everyday happening especially big cataclysmic ones like this. What does the author say? This is unique in human history. It's never happened before. It'll never happen again, right? It, the author wants us to be clear here that this is abnormal to the nth degree. It's unique, okay? What's really interesting, though, is what he's most struck about. Read it carefully. He says, There's been no day like it before since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. What's really striking to the author about this passage is not the fact that the sun stood still, it's that the sun stood still at the command of a human being. That's where he goes, this is crazy. And then he tells us why. Because the Lord fought for Israel. Okay? And so clearly that's the big point that the author wants to make. Now, what exactly are we talking about here? Many people have suggested that maybe we don't understand this in the way that we should. So, for example... Some go, maybe what we're really seeing here is not so much an extending of the day to give them light so that they can pursue their enemies, but actually a solar eclipse, okay? The primary problem with that is that we can mathematically reverse the clock and move backwards and determine when solar eclipses were, and there weren't any in the expected time of the days of Joshua, which there's a few suggestions, but none of them are anywhere near the eclipses, okay? Basically, you have to go all the way back to the, or all the way forward to the 11th century BC or all the way back to the 15th century BC, and we're definitely talking 14 and 13 in the estimates here, okay? So it doesn't line up. It doesn't make any sense. Um, on top of that, we have to deal with uh, what it says when it says that the sun did not set for a whole day, okay? That has to mean something. Others suggest that this is astrological in nature. Now, we do know that many, many ancient people looked for portents 
in terms of warfare, what was going on in the heavens to determine the outcome of the battle. Okay, So, for example, we have on paper uh, an importance of the moon and the sun coexisting in the sky, right? You've probably seen that in your own life, apart from the 14th day of the lunar calendar. Okay, That's a somewhat normal thing in the lunar calendar on the 14th day, but apart from that, it would be significant. But you can't read this as if Joshua's looking for a sign or a portent. He says, do this, and the sun does it. Okay. Now, others have suggested that this is ultimately poetic in nature, and the Bible is full of poetic warfare imagery that is cosmic. Okay, and so it will talk about God who rends the heavens and comes down. In fact, later in the book of, Judge, uh, of Judges, it will talk about during um, the fight of Barak um, uh, that the stars themselves fought Sisera and his armies. Okay? And we read that and we go, whatever this means, it doesn't mean you know, that there were rays shooting down from the stars because they were on Israel's team. Okay? And so they suggest maybe that's what's going on here. But that doesn't explain the mind-blowing uh, sense that our narrator has. He doesn't say, poetically speaking, he says, never before and never since has anything like this happened. Okay. Now the last thing that we need to keep in mind here um, is that it does take the time to tell us where things are in the sky. Did you notice that? So it says, um, verse... 12 in the poetic part, sun stands still at Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. Okay, so the sun, as he's, as he's happening here, is behind him in Gibeon and the moon is forward in Ajalon. Now, interestingly enough, most commentators say that means it has to have been morning. It has to have been. That's the only way geographically that this could be in the case. If he's where he is in the valley that he's labeled as being here, Gibeon is behind him and so is the sun, and where he's headed in this direction is the moon. That means it's morning, okay? And so the question becomes, okay, so that's interesting because we would understand if the sun was setting and he's like, hold on a minute, we need more time. But why does he have that sense in the morning? I don't know. But any interpretation that limits what the Bible talks about here falls into a trap that we always fall in. Let's see if I can nail this quote from G.K. Chesterton that I encountered last night. He says, too often we replace a reasonable account of the supernatural with a natural account that's completely made up. In other words, we come up with this imaginary thing, but it just has nothing to do with the text. And so I was laughing as I was reading this because it was making me think of one of my favorite commentators, Barclay. Barclay is great on word studies. No one knows Greek literature like Barclay, and so he takes the writings of the Greeks and he illuminates what the Greek New Testament means. But when you read him on the miracles of Jesus, he'll say, well, you know, when, when Peter... And James and John are out fishing, and they've been fishing all night, and they don't catch anything. And Jesus says, just put down your, your net on the other side. He says, Jesus clearly just had better eyesight. 
than Peter and John. And he does this with all of the miracles because he was living in a time where the miracles, even for some liberal Christians, were the most uh, unbelievable part of the New Testament. And so he just came up with explanations. But the problem is a lot of his explanations are just imaginary hypotheticals. It's, it's like if we said, well, actually, there was, uh, there was, you know, James Cameron had found a time machine, and he was going back, and he was trying to or- orchestrate this. for it. It's just as believable as the hypotheticals that he presents, okay? The only Bible we get to understand is the one that's been given to us. That's where you have to engage. That this is hard to believe is fine, but to create some hypothetical believable that it's imaginary is not an option, <laughs> It doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. What we have to come down to is the fact that the author sees this as unique. He takes the time to root this in a non-Christian or a non-Jewish text that also records this thing. And the way he describes it, even from the perspective of Israel, is that the day was two days long. Now, I do want to be very careful here because every once in a while you'll hear a sermon on this passage or you'll encounter a commentary that will say something like, scientists have shown that there's a day and some change missing in the historical record. And sometimes they'll talk about a computer and they were trying to map forward and the computer wouldn't run until somebody remembered these passages and changed the time and then it worked. It's just an urban legend. There's no, there's no scientists anywhere in Greenwich Village or anywhere else, not Greenwich Village, but in Greenwich, uh, as in the place where we have the atomic clock. Greenwich Village is funny. Um, there's no scientists anywhere. There's no records. There's no papers published that validate these things. Okay? But the real question is, can the God who created the sun and installed it in the sky, the one who set its courses, can he interfere in that? Okay? And we go, yeah, but what would it do to the rest? Can he delay all of those things? Of course he can, okay? There's no getting around the fact that this is miraculous and unique, and that's the point. The point is what God does for here is cosmic and even cataclysmic in nature because he fights for Israel. Now, we're going to read through the rest of the entire campaign tonight, and effectively it's going to be a very simple routing. And the reason I think that it goes so well is because how do you turn back from this? How are you not convinced at this point that this is God's thing? Okay, And that's the point uh, that God makes here. It's the point that the author wants us to make. And so, verse 15, Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Okay, And so here, the entire southern half of Israel is taken care of in a single campaign, beginning with this one battle in Gibeah, and then, and then it flows forward in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves at a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack their rear god. Do not let them enter the cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So here's the leaders of these armies in hiding. They're discovered. And he says, take care of them. Close them off in the caves. Post a guard and then get back on the road and chase down the enemies that God has given into your hand. Verse 20, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained to them had entered into fortified cities, 
Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makkedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Okay. Now, notice, notice a little bit of paradoxical language there. It's both until they were completely wiped out and when the remnant had remained, made it into the cities. Okay? And so that means the majority is eradicated, but not the whole. That's important. That'll become significant in the book. It's the only way you can understand the book of Joshua is that the back of the enemies of Israel is broken by this campaign. But there's more work to do. Okay? And so we see that right here in the text. And then verse 22, Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when he brought, out these, uh, brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chief men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. Okay? So picture this. He takes his, his greatest generals, the heads of his armies, and he takes these five kings and he has them lay their heads on the ground and he says, I want you to come up and I want you to place your foot on their necks. Okay? Now, I just got back from France. And every time I'm in France, there's always a theme. And this time the theme was the angel Michael and his victory over Satan. And the reason why I say it was a theme is because I saw it everywhere, okay? So the church that I was visiting is at a new location, and its closest, uh, closest uh, landmark is the Font Saint Michael, okay? The, the fount of Saint Michael. And so here's this big, beautiful fountain, and it's got a lot of details, but at the top, it's the Michael angel with his foot on the neck of Satan, and then I took a Saturday trip out to uh, Mont Saint Michel, Mont Saint Michel, which is this um, monastery built on an island that's all focused on this same thing. And so at the very top of it is this angel with his foot upon the devil. It's, it's Michael again, okay? Uh, and then I went to the opera, and I found the same thing in the opera house. It was, just, it was just the theme of the trip. It was everywhere. And I've been reflecting on it since. And it's an interesting thing because if you flip through the Bible and try and find this imagery with the angel Michael, you won't. That Michael in the book of Revelation is waging war against the devil? Absolutely. But this actual image that has become an, uh, an iconic description, uh, for example, if you want a local version of this, just go to Bastyr. Go to St. Thomas's Cathedral at Bastyr University, um, just a little bit north of Seattle, and one of their many stained glass windows is this same personification. Okay? Clearly, it's a picture of complete victory, okay? of no longer being a threat, of putting your enemy under your feet, and it's a common articulation in the Old Testament. So, for example, it says in the Psalms that God, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is what it's talking about, okay? But the interesting thing is, um, the Bible doesn't put an emphasis on Michael doing this, but the Messiah doing this. And then a little bit further than that, because notice here Joshua's the leader. He's the one who, who is responsible for this, but he brings the leaders of the people, and he says, you're going to enjoy this victory. You should put your foot on the next. And the only thing I wanted to draw your attention to is something Paul says at the very end of his letter to the Romans. 
He says to the people in Rome, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will crush Satan under your feet shortly. He takes this messianic promise, this one that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll put enmity between you and the serpent, and the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. And he said, it's going to be your foot on the neck of the devil, church in Rome. Okay? And so the whole idea here is one of no longer being afraid of your enemy. Okay? That's the idea here. It's like at the end of that um, Jim Henson movie, The Labyrinth, where Jennifer Garner's character looks at David Bowie and she says, you have no power over me. And the whole spell of everything that's been going on is broken. Okay? I wish I'd taken the time to, to look up where it was, but there's a, a passage in the book of Isaiah that may be talking about the devil. And it says, there will come a day where he's paraded before all the rulers of the earth and they'll go, is this the one who shook the earth? Is this the one we were all so afraid of? You see, the Bible says that even we in our own time, although we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, nor are our weapons of physical warfare, there is still a spiritual warfare. And it, Paul tells the church in Ephesus to resist the devil and he will flee from him. And then he goes on and he says, to do so, you need to put on the whole armor of God. And he walks through the, um, I love this phrase, the panoply that God has given us, the armory that God has given us to draw from. Um, but we need to recognize the significance of the fact that part of what makes your life so difficult as a Christian is there really is a demonic power that wants the worst for you, that is proactively committed to ruining your life merely because you are part of God's creation. There's lots of good things that you can read that help us to kind of get in tune with that idea. Of course, there's the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, which is always helpful. But actually, one of my favorite portrayals of the devil uh, by C.S. Lewis is in his Space Trilogy. And in Paralandra, which is basically this retelling of the story of Eden, but this time on the planet Venus. Um, and so there's this Satan-possessed man named Winston, and then there's the main character of the series, Ransom, who my son is named for. And he's basically sent to make sure that the woman doesn't believe the tempter like happened on earth. That's kind of the premise. But the way that he portrays Satan in that book is so helpful. And one of the things that reminds me of what we're talking about here um, is that at one point, Ransom is walking through this beautiful, pristine world that's never known death, and he finds this frog and it's just been lacerated and its entire skin flayed on its back and flipped forward and the frog is just kind of slowly crawling and dying. And he gets a little bit further and there's another and there's another and there's another and finally he comes into a clearing and there's Winston, this demonically possessed man and he's just methodically slaughtering frogs, okay? Why? Because they're God's creation and that's his mission. Satan has come, as Jesus told us, to steal to kill, and to destroy. We may not be aware of it, but that's a part of our life. And so here in Joshua, we get this personification of this reality that Paul promises for us, that the power of the devil in our lives and beyond will be completely broken. And so he says, experience this, enjoy this, place your feet on the neck of your enemy. Okay, verse 25 
Joshua said to them, Don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death. He hanged them on five trees, and he hung them on till evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they'd hidden themselves and set large stones against them in the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of its sword, and he devoted it to destruction. Every person in it he left none remaining, as he did to the king of Makeda, just he had done to the king of Jericho. Then, verse 29, Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. Okay, so remember, the southern part of Israel, five of their greatest kings come together forward in this coalition. He takes them all out, then he deals with their cities, and now he starts to deal with the cities that weren't part of the coalition, the, the remaining kings and people groups that are in southern Israel. Okay. And so verse 30, the Lord gave it and also its king into the hand of Israel and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, he left none remaining in it and he did to its king as he'd done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he'd done to Libna. Now I want you to notice as we read this, Almost every story is close to the same, but not exactly the same. Okay? So there's a clear pattern. He comes, he sieges the city, he strikes it, he devotes it to destruction, he kills the king just as he did the other kings. But in every one, there's these little different details. So for example, here in Lachish, we're told it wasn't until the second day that he overcame. And the reason why I point that out to you is not just because the author clearly wants us to get a pattern of victory here, but also because there are significant historical details that differ, okay? This reads like a historical account, not a cut-and-paste pattern. So it continues here, verse 34, uh, sorry, verse 33, Then Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. They laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day, struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person to destruction that day as he'd done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns, and every person in it he left none remaining as he'd done to Eglon. He devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with his king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, and he devoted it to destruction, every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he'd done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So, verse 40, Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, the low land, the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded and Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and all their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And so starting with this single battle and then a following campaign, they conquer all of the southern half and they return back to Gilgal, their initial campground. Um, what happens in chapter 11 
uh, is the same way that chapter 10 begins and the same way that chapter 9 begins. So in chapter 9, when all the people of the land had heard, they form a coalition. In chapter 10, when all the people of the land had heard about this covenant with Gibeah, they formed a coalition. And then in 11, now dealing with the northern part of Israel, okay, think the Sea of Galilee and beyond, uh, Verse 1, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashaphath, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and Arabar, south of Chinneroth and in the lowland, and Naphrodor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, and the Jebusites in the hill country. Now pause. Most of those people are in the north, but the Jebusites, that's Jerusalem. Okay. And so there's still remaining people there, and even they get involved. And so there's remnants in the south that own up and travel long distances to join up with the armies in the north, in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that's on the seashore. And then notice this, with many horses and chariots. Okay. Now, horses and chariots haven't been mentioned in the book so far. And actually, that makes sense. The southern part of Israel uh, is not a good place for chariots. It's, it's hilly and crazy. It's mountainous. It's up and down. Uh, you would not bring a chariot to a war in Jerusalem. doesn't make any sense. As far as I know, it's never been attempted in history. Okay? It's, it's mountainous. It's hill country. But a lot of Israel to the north, along the Mediterranean Sea and where the Sea of Galilee is, where modern-day Tiberias is, for example, uh, is relatively flat. And even as you get up into the hill country, it's hill country like amber waves of grain farming hill country, not like the mountainous south. And so they're equipped here with, a, with, a, um, with horses and with chariots. And remember, Israel is not. Okay. This is the equivalent of them uh, now bringing a knife to a gunfight to fight with these people. Okay. It's, it's an, uh, an advanced form of military technology. Okay. So verse 5, And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram for a fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And then notice this, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Okay, so he almost just basically says, don't be afraid, by tomorrow this will all be over. And then he says, by the way, as soon as you're done, all the horses need to be hamstrung, which means that they can never ride into battle again. They don't have the strength in their legs to gallop at a full pace. And all the chariots are to be outright destroyed. Now that's significant, okay? Oftentimes, as modern people, we read about the warfare in the Old Testament, and especially this idea of this whole set of people groups in this foreign land of Canaan being devoted to destruction. But we need to recognize here that, that God doesn't equip Israel to be a people of war. In fact, he constantly hinders and limits them from being so. Even when they finally get a king, the book of Deuteronomy says they are not to make chariots and they are not to go to Egypt and breed horses and build up a... It was always supposed to be a significantly weakened army because either God gives them the victory or they're not supposed to fight. It's as simple as that. And so there is a major difference between 
between the nation of Israel fighting this war in the Middle East and a modern first world government stockpiling nuclear warheads. It's a completely different thing. Intentionally, God sets limits here. He does the fighting for them. This is after 400 years of God giving promises and saying he's going to do this. There's a large context here. But notice here, God is adamant about this. I'm going to give you this victory, and then you're going to destroy all of the um, advanced technology of warfare. And so, 7, Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly, probably implying that same first thing in the morning attack that we read about earlier, suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And then once again, the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misram Maim, as eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord had said to him, he hamstrung the horses and he burned their chariots with fire. So once again, we see a giant battle the battle's over in a single day, and then he goes out into the land and territory of those kings, all of northern Israel, uh, and, and conquers. And so verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time to capture Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hamer, for, Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. Okay, like Jericho, and a city that I'm forgetting right now, there's basically three fortress cities that we read about in the stories of Joshua. This is the last one. This is the strongest fortification in northern Israel, and so it's where he starts. Uh, and that's why it says that he, um, he burns it. Uh, verse 11, they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left and breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned, okay? And so it wasn't their normal habit to raise and burn the cities. Why? Because they're actually going to move into them. That was one of the promises that God made in Deuteronomy, that they would live in cities they did not build. But the fortress cities like Jericho and Hazor, they were to be completely burned to the ground, okay? So even when Israel gets installed in the land, they don't have any military fortifications, okay? Verse 14, all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people Israel took for plunder, but every man struck with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, just as they uh, and they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant Moses, so commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone that all the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Balgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. Those would be mountains at the furthest south and the furthest northern reaches of the promised land. Um, and he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now we covered it in just a few chapters, but here we see that although these initial battles were very quick, the campaigns that followed them actually took a very long time. And most commentators believe by the time we get to chapter 12, it's been about seven years. Okay. And so they're at this for a long time. Uh, verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now, don't read that the wrong way. That's not just that nobody 
nobody went for a peace agreement, it also means that they weren't fooled again, okay? They were faithful to do what God had called them to do. Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And so all the way back in Israel, we see as the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's kind of where things begin. And now we discover that the reason why they come and gather their armies and fight is because God is playing both sides of the chessboard. Right? He's at work in this thing significantly. And so he hardens them so that they, um, they, just, uh, they come right into Israel's hands. Verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anib, from the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Now the Anakim uh, were known for their stature and their, um, their military ability. Okay? When Israel sends spies all the way back in Numbers 13 into the land and they see the Anakim there, they go, they're like the Nephilim of old. They're giants. We're grasshoppers in their sights, okay? These are significantly large people, uh, maybe even, you know, comparatively giant-sized people, not like Jack and the Beanstalk giant, but just larger than your average human being. Um, And so Joshua takes them out. He deals with them. He drives them out. They'll return. We'll see that Caleb deals with them. But he takes over their land till not, not many are left. Verse 22, there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, as some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Moses the Lord had spoken. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Okay, so now notice here, it speaks of Joshua being complete in his obedience the land being completely conquered, and the war being completely over. But it only means that in a particular sense, okay? As we're going to see, Israel didn't actually take out and deal with everyone. But once again, the back of their enemies is broken. The ability for for Israel's enemies to fight back is solidified. And from now on, what's going to happen is he's going to dole out the tribal land, and then the tribes on their own are to take care of the remnants that are left, okay? But nonetheless, that verse serves as probably the best summary of the entire book of Joshua, for one. Uh, And then second, it's also the bridge from between what we've read so far about the conquering and what we will read about the doling out of the land. It's, It's a hinge verse, okay, that touches these two things. But notice that it emphasizes the word rest, They had rest from war. We'll come back to that. But let's do chapter 12 first, okay? Now, chapter 12 is one of those chapters. It's a list. In fact, it's going to count mathematically. It's going to do the sums and count up and name all 31 of the kings that were killed during this campaign, okay? Most of those we've already encountered, but it also adds some that were just listed as and all their kings, and it names them here, okay? Um, But it's basically just a summary of all of the warfare of Israel, not just in the book of Joshua, but also including uh, on the east side of Israel, King Sihon, or sorry, of the east side of the Jordan, King Sihon and King Og. And so it's a summary of the entire military campaign. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't things to draw from here. 
But we've got to read it first before we can draw them out. So let's do that. Verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon with all of Arabah eastward, Sihon the king of Amorites who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead and the Arba to the sea of Chinneroth eastward in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth to the sea of Arba, the salt sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pigsaw. And Og the king of Bashan, the one remnant of Rephaim who lived in Ashtaroth at Edri and ruled over Mount Hermon and Sekla and all of Bashan to the boundary of the Gershites and the Machathites and over Gilead to the boundary of Sihon king of Heshbon. Moses the servant of the Lord and the people of Israel defeated them and Moses the servant of the Lord gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe. Of Manasseh. So this is the two and a half tribes and their inheritance and victories on the east side of the Jordan. And then we have the list on the west side of the Jordan under Joshua. Verse 7. These are the kings of the land who Joshua of the people of Israel defeated on the west side of Jordan from Balgad to the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak to the rise towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, in the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Deber won, the king of Geder won, the king of Horma won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lashron won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hezer won, the king of Shimron Meron won, the king of Asaphoth won, the king of Tanak won, the king of Megiddo won. Now, side note, Megiddo is where we get our word Armageddon. Okay, Tel Megiddo, which you can visit in Israel today, has something like 13 civilizations stacked on top of it because it's where the way of the sea and the king's road meet. And so if you're going to control the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, which connects uh, Babylon, Egypt, and some other power that I always forget, uh, strategically you have to control this road. It's where all the commerce goes through. It's where all the armies march, the whole thing. So this city's been sacked across history over and over again and if you watch it they have a spiral cut up it like a layer cake and you can walk through the ages of civilization when the Canaanites went there when Solomon was controlling it it's that place Tel Megiddo and the valley that it's in that we get our phrase Armageddon from and it's the place that Revelation envisions as being the final place of the major war of mankind but if you understand what Megiddo is that makes perfect sense because Israel knows that this is where all the wars happen, okay? But it's mentioned here. Uh, so the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh, verse 22, won, the king of Jonakim in Carmel won, the king of Dor in Napheth Dor won, the king of Goam in Galilee won, the king of Tisra won, in all 31 kings. Now, if you'd like to check his math, you can, because that's part of the reason why it's here. And the first thing we should recognize about this is, once again, this is important because it's historical, this is the actual record as it happened. But what I want to draw your illustration to is that we have basically three identities here. We have Moses and Joshua, and their identity in the text is what? 
servant. We have the people of Israel, and they in the text, if you've got the New King James, it's children. Okay? And then on the other half, we have kings. Okay? And so this is a war of servants and children versus kings. Okay? The word there for people in the ESV or children uh, is ben, like Benjamin, son of. Okay? It's the sons of Israel here. Um, but, but I think that's really fascinating. Because when we take these two things, uh, servant and child, and uh, especially when we understand how the children of Israel relate to the promised land, they relate to the promised land as a gift from their father, right? And so if you read this passage carefully in chapter 12, God has given them these kings, given them. We saw that over and over again. And so the idea of child, just like for us in the New Testament of our heavenly father is the one who knows our needs before we ask and who Uh, You know, if our parents give us good things, how much more our Heavenly Father, right? The giver. The image of servant is not of a servant and a parent, but a servant and a master, okay? And so effectively, when we talk about the children of Israel coming to the land, we're talking about faith. But when we talk about Moses and Joshua, when we talk about the servants of God in Israel coming to the land, we're talking about obedience, And that really, I think, gets at the heart of this tension we see in the book of Joshua, that the land is given to them, but there's also something for them to do. It's both believing that God will give them the land and acting in obedience, and the two go hand in hand. Now, when we tie that to the fact that that it says here that through this war, they were given rest, and this word rest here is not just no longer fighting, but they have the land, right? They can settle in now. Now we're ready to turn to the book of Hebrews, and that's where I wanted to finish tonight. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Now we're going to start all the way back in Israel's first misstep in the promised land, right? So this is Numbers chapter 13. The spies go into the land. Ten of them go, we can't do it. The other two say, no, God is with us. We absolutely can. And Israel rebels and refuses to enter into the land. That's where our author starts in verse 16 here. Uh, Verse 15, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You see that? So the commentator of the Hebrews here, looking back on Israel's history, says the thing that kept them out of the land, and rest is what he really wants to talk about, the thing that kept them from rest was simultaneously disobedience and unbelief. He puts them hand in hand. Okay? Then notice, uh, as chapter 4 goes on, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered the rest. Okay? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, just like Israel, we have a good report. And ours isn't the land is good and God will give it to us. It's Jesus has died for us and is now alive. But for us to enjoy the promises of that, we find ourselves in the place of Israel. We can take it 
or we can leave it. And so he says, uh, for we who have believed, verse 3, have entered rest, as he said, as I swore in my uh, wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And so he says, rest has been something that God has always had for human beings. And we see Israel failing to keep it. And then notice where he goes next, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appointed a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden his heart. And so he says, it's repeated, this enter into rest. And he points out here it's repeated by David after the book of Joshua is written. Joshua gives the people rest, but David in the Psalms, he says, that rest is still available. It's still to be taken. And so notice verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I love how paradoxical that is. Rest and striving seem incompatible. But he says, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. So what does he say here? He says, we too have a word. We too have a land, a shalom, a promise of rest. And we too enter into it in the two-sided coin of faith and obedience, of receiving what God has for us by walking out in our life and doing what he tells us to do. We very rarely sing it, but there's an old hymn that's always stuck in my head because the church I got saved in sang it all the time, and it's very simple. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so the book of Joshua becomes a good paradigm for us, even though we're not strapping on uh, actual weapons and we're not taking a physical on earth promised land. God has laid it up for us, abundant rest, and we come at it in the same way. As children receiving the promises of their father and as servants obeying the commands of their Lord. Let's pray. Father, there's no getting away from the fact that Joshua is held up uh, as a model leader, as one who heard the words of Moses and did all that Moses commanded him to do. And we know that there's one greater than Joshua who is obedient in all things, always doing the things that please the Father and making way for us. But the only way to follow in his footsteps is to literally follow him in obedience, and in trust. And so I pray, Lord, in our own battles, whatever they look like, in our own fears, whatever we face, that we would believe in the promises of our Heavenly Father who loves us and has given us rest. And we would receive those promises through walking in obedience in the things that you've called us to do. 
We ask that you'd help us with these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.